0: First, in number 70, 18, row against Wade.
1: Hi, it's Wesley Yang, and in this week's episode of the Year Zero podcast, we will do something for the first time that we will go on to do periodically in the future, which is to take our focus off of the retroactive and miscellaneous focus of the other podcast series, To look at a subject that is squarely at the center of the news cycle, in this case, the leak of a draft opinion by the Supreme Court undoing Roe v. Wade, which is an issue, in my judgment, that goes right to the heart of the question of ideological succession and the forces that it has stirred up, summoned up in response to itself. There's a striking passage in a recent New York Times editorial looking at the abortion question and laying out the terms of a potential compromise reflecting the moral intuitions of the American public. It describes the career of a woman named Dr. Susan Wickland, identified as a hero of the abortion rights movement. The passage goes on to say, and I quote, in the face of death threats, she gained attention for going to work with a loaded revolver at the ready. Less noted was her decision to limit her practice to first-trimester abortions. Recalling her decision, Dr. Wickland, who is now retired, wrote, Seeing an arm pulled through the vaginal canal was shocking. One of the nurses in the room escorted me out when the color left my face. She continued... From that moment, I chose to limit my abortion practice to the first trimester, 14 weeks or less. In her willingness to face murderous abortion foes, but not second trimester abortions, Dr. Wickland embodies our clashing impulses.
0: Now, how should we, how should that question be decided? Is it a legal question,
1: a constitutional question, a medical question, a philosophical question, a religious question, or what is it? In this case, we'll be talking with a Claremont McKenna professor of government, John Shields, on the future of abortion politics in the United States. We'll be talking about that op-ed, but also about the larger question of the Christian right movement, whose victory, whose ultimate triumph uh, this moment in the court represents, uh, as well as considering the various high variants, very volatile and perhaps perilous Developments, implications, and consequences that will flow from this enormous event. So let's just begin with that op-ed mm-hmm. and, and and talk about you know the, the argument you made there. Great, thanks,
0: Wesley. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I, I I begin by just observing that the abortion conflict is is often lumped together with other so-called cultural war issues, right? So it gets lumped together with prayer in school, gay rights, same-sex marriage, etc. But it always struck me that it was fundamentally different from those conflicts. And it's one of the reasons I got drawn to it early in graduate school. The issue really fascinated me. And I think one reason it did is because it struck me, again, that it's different. And I think the ways in which it's different um, have profound implications for today. I think it's why the court is really revisiting the issue, it's why the issue is no more closer to being resolved than it was in 1973 when Roe um, was decided. And, and I think it's different because it's fundamentally a sort of liberal civil war in which both parties, that is to say pro-choice activists and pro-life activists, really think of themselves in, in a actually remarkably similar way both sides think of themselves as human rights crusaders who are charged with expanding the frontiers of human freedom, human equality. And so they really think of themselves in some sense as children of the declaration, right? In that grand liberal heritage and tradition that extends back to abolitionists, that extends back to civil rights activists, and I, in the American context, that's a, that's a recipe for a lot of conflict because we're a Lockean country. And, um, and and that's one of the arguments I made way back in 2009 when I wrote my dissertation and then book on the Christian right. And at the time, that was, and I think still is in some ways, a different way of thinking about the conflict, and especially pro-lifers, because pro-lifers had been seen by lots of social scientists as, as a fundamentally illiberal movement, as a, as a movement, e- even when it was understood sympathetically, say it was by Kristen Luker, who wrote a very influential book called Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood. And, and, and Luker's argument was that pro-lifers, you know, for the pro-life movement, she said, look, for them, it's not, the issue really isn't about rights, really, it's not really about abortion, it's not even really about the fetus, it's really about the high and holy calling of motherhood. And abortion was a sort of, in her view, a sort of symbolic crusade. Uh, that drove pro-life activists and and that they were really uh, and then the, and that they therefore saw the pro-choice movement as a movement that was uh, compromising their traditional roles as mothers and and caretakers and so that was sort of the conventional view, and I think it it was wrong then, and I think the evidence now. Overwhelmingly suggests that it's that it's wrong. If if Luker's view, if that if that old view had been right, if pro-lifers were fundamentally a movement driven by gender traditionalism, we would have expected a much more pro-choice country than we have today. Right? I mean, I think one of the really remarkable things about the abortion conflict is that abortion opinion has hardly changed in 50 years. Right? This is. No one predicted this back in the 70s and 80s, right? There was a sort of confidence that, you know, in decade in 2022, America would be a much more pro-choice country. And and it has proved to be wrong. And it's it's wrong even though Americans are much more feminist than they were 50 years ago. You know, we're much more we're much more less socially conservative in all kinds of ways. We even are much less religious. And yet we're we're no less divided about abortion. And I think that's fundamentally, again, because it's a different issue than the other culture war issues. There's a way in which the pro-life cause has always resonated in our liberal tradition. And so even Americans who are um, not religious or maybe just nominally religious sort of get the pro-life position. You know, it's sort of an argument that has some rational power. Um, and in in a way that other issues that are, again, part of what we think of the culture war do not, right? So, you know, you can't take a survey in America uh, without Americans becoming more sympathetic to same-sex marriage than they were a year before, right? That that needle keeps moving in a progressive direction. Um, And again, I think that's because in that case, conservatives are really defending a sort of illiberal understanding of the good that doesn't resonate in our rights-oriented culture. So so that's sort of the first, I think, big thing to understand um, about this conflict. So on the one hand, I think this is an issue that doesn't go away because it appeals to our, our liberalism. On the other hand, and this is somewhat harder to see in some ways, but on the other hand, I think our you know, our conflict, which seems very polarized at times, has also been quietly moderated by common human intuitions about the moral status of the embryo. So for example, one of the arguments I've made is that, look, you know, we tend to have a, a natural, sympath- a, a natural um, tendency to sympathize with creatures that resemble us. So um, that means that as soon as embryos start to look much more recognizably human, much more recognizably like infants, we tend to give more credence to pro-life points of view, right? So uh, so Americans feel very differently on average about um, abortion early in, in pregnancy uh, than they do about later abortions, right? And this is less to do with any sort of philosophical point of view, and more to do with just a sort of sense that um, that the, the claims, the, uh, but more to do with a sort of a kind of um, you know a sort of intuition that uh, beings that resemble us deserve or are entitled to rights in a way that that human organisms that don't look like us, right, don't don't and shouldn't enjoy those same rights. So I think we have these. Powerful intuitions that come to us through our evolutionary psychology, and I think the interesting thing here to note, Wesley, is that I think in, a, in lots of ways these intuitions, of course, they make most Americans sort of squishy on abortion, right? So most Americans are feel conflicted and support abortion early in in the in a pregnancy, but not later, and that's how they reconcile these clashing liberal campaigns on both the side of the pro-lifers and the pro-choicers. But I think even for activists themselves, they sometimes feel the pull of these intuitions, right? So for example, one startling fact that's rarely recognized is that a lot of abortion providers limit their practice to first trimester abortions. And they do so because they find providing abortions later in pregnancy trouble, right? They have no qualms, Uh, no difficulty at all providing abortion early, Uh, but they are often reluctant to do so later in pregnancy. So about half of of abortion providers in the United States, for example, don't provide uh, abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which incidentally is exactly where Mississippi drew the line, right? It's It's sort of a startling fact if you think about it, right? Like most abortion providers, at least in practice, are sort of where Mississippi is, right? Where the legislators of Mississippi are. They're not, there's not that much daylight. Yes, in principle, they think, you know, abortion should be widely available beyond that point, philosophically, but as a practical matter, they don't want to do them and they don't want to do them because they find it upsetting to provide them. And there's actually lots of evidence that's true. There's lots of studies that have not gotten a lot of attention um, by ethnographers who, who go into abortion clinics and ask and sort of study these spaces. And um, and there's just a lot of evidence that abortion providers are um, feel the power of these moral intuitions, right? As soon as they have to start dealing with creatures that resemble us, as soon as embryos get little feet and arms and everything, everything changes for them, right? And it gets a lot harder. Um, so I think what's interesting here is that we have a You know, we have an abortion uh, regime established by Roe and its companion decisions that created this really expansive right to abortion. And I'm happy to say more about that. But it it did create this very expansive right. And yet, in practice, the scope of that right is limited by providers themselves, right, Uh, who feel uncomfortable uh, doing late-term abortions. So, and I think... Uh, to a lesser degree, this has been true on the pro-life side as well. That is to say, I think, I think they too have the sense that there's a difference between a late-term and early abortion, and it too has shaped their movement. So, for example, back in the 1990s, there were two important issues in the pro-life movement. One was embryonic stem cell research, which was suddenly becoming um, uh, was, was suddenly a new issue on the agenda, and the other was partial birth abortion. And inside the pro-life movement, it was a lot easier to get activists energized and excited about fighting partial birth abortion, but much harder to get them uh, energized about fighting embryonic stem cell research, right? It was, it, it was or, you know, the, they weren't as concerned about the destruction of embryos in labs. Um, that was a harder, harder reach for them. And so activists couldn't muster the same sort of moral passion and again, I think this is because they, um, they simply have different um, sort of common, they share actually common moral intuitions with the abortion providers, right, um, who also uh, make similar kinds of distinctions. So I guess the, you know, and I think if you look beyond the United States, you see the power of these intuitions everywhere. You know, if you look at, you know, most other Western democracies, most of them draw the line at about the first trimester sort of an allow abortion early and ban it late. And I guess my, I wonder if we'll eventually move in that direction over time. Uh, I think that's where most countries end up. Um, And I think that there's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of way in which over time, all of us might be willing to live within a regime that Draws a different sort of line, right? That draws a more European line, which sort of makes a again, sort of allows abortion early, bans it late. I think that we may be inching uh, toward in in that direction, although I think it could be um, a little time before we get there. And I'm happy to say more about that, Wesley. But that at least sets the table a little
1: bit. Sure. With with regard to the the anti-abortion. Right, regarding themselves as a kind of human rights crusade, I think I think many from the other side would say this is this is an opportunistic appropriation of a certain kind of language, but you uh, you know and, and a rhetoric um, that that's designed to be politically powerful. But you say that it's actually more than that, and that's that's on the basis of your interviews with people that you did for your dissertation. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, it's it's hard to. My reaction to those folks is, my question for them really is, have you ever spent any Mm. time with pro-life activists? Because if you do, one is immediately struck by their obsession Mm. with Mm. embryos, right? And Mm. fetuses, right? They're constantly talking about dead Mm. babies. So, you know, I I think it's actually a mistake for those on the pro- choice side to not see pro-lifers mm. clearly because I think it they don't realize what they're up mm. against, right. right? Like, I mean pro-lifers are deeply committed to the proposition uh, that you know, but uh, they, they are part of this human rights crusade. And I'd say two other quick things. Um, one is, you know, the origins of movement in some ways begin on the mm. left, right? I mean, the the most radical wing, of the pro-life movement, was pioneered mostly by leftist Catholics, who were actually also protesting the Vietnam War out of a sort of consistent ethic of life. And they saw no tension between their position on abortion and their position against the war. So I think that the movement itself has been ideologically eclectic. I don't think its origins are even particularly in the right and certainly not its most radical wing of the movement. And then even, you know, the other thing I'd say quickly is, you know, if you believe that this is just, if you believe the movement is just a, a regressive traditionalism and liberal drag, right? If if that's the view, you really have a hard time making sense of, you know, the massive campaign of civil disobedience that unfolded in the 1980s when you had the, the radical wing, you know, uh, blockading clinics in massive numbers, being parted off and roughed up by police, uh, spending time in jail, uh, the more fringy types, even bombing clinics. I mean, did they do this for the politics of motherhood? You know, did they do it for some, you know... Um, uh, Nostalgia for a more traditional America. I think if we want to make sense of that passion, Mm. uh, the only thing that makes sense of that passion Mm. in a way is if we take them seriously Mm. at their word.
1: Right. Uh, So... uh, it, you talk about a kind of equilibrium that, that is there, that that is present in public opinion numbers and in, which in turn is correlated to our moral intuitions, which in turn have been manifested in mm-hmm. other places that did not arrest the process of arriving at that equilibrium through the conferral of a constitutional right. Um, and so it mm-hmm. sounds like you're saying that the removal of it will allow that process to happen, and and we are likely at the end of it. Although it could be a rocky ride along the way, um, uh, you, you know, to settle on this place where a supermajority of public opinion sits, and which is in turn backed up with the general feeling that we have that this thing that looks like a tadpole is killable, and this mm-hmm. thing that looks like mm-hmm. a little baby is not.
0: Yeah, I, I guess if I'm, and and I should, of course, preface this by saying that we are really bad at social right. scientists at predicting right. the future. So I do this with some hesitancy. But I would say, you know, I, I do think that, I mean, I do wonder, for example, uh, let's take the example of Texas. You know, um, this is a state that has had abort- access to abortion for a long time, how long will its citizens tolerate a regime where suddenly they can't, right, their daughter gets pregnant even if they're a Republican, right? How, how long will those folks um, tolerate it, right? Uh, particularly, they've they've become accustomed, again, to this... This right and having abortion access, I, I wonder, right, uh, if in time there'll be a movement in some of these very red states, particularly the most populous ones, where there's you know um, lots of folks who aren't going to like this, who will say, gee, you know, can't we um, can't we compromise here, right? Uh, and 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 so lots of lots of Republican voters who might, you know, if they have to pick a team, will say they're pro-life. I sort of wonder if over time some of them, some of those voters will decide, yes, I'm pro-life, but, you know, um, that doesn't mean I support some absolute ban in abortion. So, and I think the evidence for this claim, right, the, the evidence for the view that some of these, there'll be a sort of gravitation toward the mean uh, over time is supported, again, by the European case. I mean, there were some very... <clears throat> You know, pro-life nations, notably Ireland and Poland, that after time they just said, "Gee, you know, this is, um, you know, this is not tenable, right?" We we want some, we want we're we're a, you know, I think there's all kinds of reasons that citizens want abortion rights, of course, but I I I, I think that over time those places gravitated toward the European mean. I think you know, if Georgia and Texas and those states initially ban it. Uh, they'll gravitate towards something more moderate, as well. Um, and I, I guess in the end, you know, I would say I think there's something sort of utopian about the pro-life point of view as well, right? I mean, I, I don't, I I think it asks too much of us in some ways, um, and that it, in a in a weird kind of way, it it it, it demands a kind of rationalism that I think is is too heavy of a lift right it demands that we for purely philosophical reasons really believe that the tadpole has the same moral status as the as the you know the neonate and that's a even even for folks who can get there philosophically it's a hard stretch to get there sentimentally and so we tend to uh, so I think it's 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 um, it's a crusade that um, I, I think total victory uh, for them will, was, is, is in some ways contrary to, to our own
1: nature. So one of the arguments that I heard on another podcast, uh, mm-hmm. of Melissa Murray mm-hmm. on uh, Vox, you know, she was one of the parenthetical statements that she made, and this was in advance of the, uh, the leak of the ruling, was that... Um, You know, continuing to hollow out access to abortion while nominally keeping the core of the holding of Roe in place might not be Mm -hmm. the best outcome for those who support the pro-choice cause or for the Democratic Party, because it would allow a de facto Destruction of the uh, you know of the of the right for many um, and without by, while pe- leaving people in their slumbers and and a kind of um, mm. a more calculating, uh, less driven by an absolutist commitments, right wing supermajority on the Supreme Court would have hewed to that kind of approach but there was a need apparently uh, mm. to say that this thing was bad law. <laughs> and of course, now there are many people who are saying uh, in response that the stripping out of this bad law um, or what they claim to be a bad law, the stripping out of a right to privacy and everything else that hinges on it is a is necessarily a precursor to a larger judicial counter-revolution that is going to be led by the court uh, I'm just looking at a piece here, I'm going to quote it, um, by Lawrence Tribe in the Boston Globe, where he points out that if the right of a woman to decide whether to have a baby, a right that arises from the simple idea that everyone owns their own bodies, won't qualify, then neither will most of the rights you have long assumed are yours. Um, what is your sense of the of what the decision tells us about the court and of the movement that is behind it. And does this decision surprise you? Did Mm -hmm. you write about this equilibrium that you described expecting Mm. something that would go over the waterfall in this way and just cut the whole thing down or expecting a a more uh, Machiavellian approach to, to pruning it away in practice while sort of keeping it alive nominally? Yeah, good questions.
0: I'm going to sort of back into them, I think. So, I mean, you know, when Roe was decided, I think, you know, so many Americans from across the political spectrum thought Roe was bad law, right? And we know this. lots of pro-choice thinkers uh, think it was bad law. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her way, thought it was bad law, too. She described the decision as breathtaking and I think I'm really sympathetic to all of that. I mean, it was a decision that created this, you know, sweeping right to abortion really through all nine months of pregnancy. And and it really did... I mean, I hate to use this word because it gets used incorrectly, but I, I do think it did sort of disenfranchise a lot of Americans. Disenfranchise in the sense that suddenly... You know, in the morning of January 22nd, 1973, you had lots of Americans who woke up and discovered that they couldn't really vote on this issue anymore, right? It sort of been taken out of the court of the legislators, out of elections. And there was a deep sense of- It inaugurated a new regime. It did. And there was a deep, deep sense of injustice. And actually, parenthetically, I would say, had the court created a right to life- it it would have been a similar kind of injustice, right? You're, you're disenfranchising reasonable citizens who have a disagreement about the nature of rights, right? So that seems wrong. And I think it had profound influence on both movements. And this is my way of backing into your, your question, really. I mean, it for the pro-lifers, it was very energizing, right? And, and so suddenly, they couldn't vote in elections, and they felt like this was a grave injustice. And so they built a movement to fight abortion. And they did it, it was many pronged, you know, it included included civil disobedience, as I mentioned before. It included a huge network of crisis pregnancy centers, which are, you know, facilities and local communities that are set up to help women in, in difficult pregnancies. Um, it created, you know, a, an outraged and vital movement. One might even say it birthed the conservative legal movement too, which has brought us to this moment, right? When this, uh, And so I think it was incredibly energizing to the right. And on the other side, I think it was, you know, it, it weakened sort of the pro-choice movement. Suddenly they felt like they had total victory, and ever since, it's been harder for them to galvanize their rank and file and give them a sense that abortion rights are fragile and insecure and they need to do something about it, right? We've had 50 years of abortion rights. It's felt like, you know, it's felt like, um, uh, you know, we turned, we've crossed the Rubicon and we're not, we're not heading back. So, yeah, if the court, if the court overturns this, I could imagine some of those dynamics being reversed, where suddenly, um, suddenly the pro-choice side is very energized, and um, and takes seriously claims they might have dismissed in the past, right? Alarmist notes they might have dismissed in the past from movement leaders who are trying to mobilize them, and, and now a lot of pro-choice citizens are going to say, "Oh, right, this is this is really." Um, you know, something really radical has happened and we need to organize and set us back on a progressive path. So yeah, whereas if if the court settles on a sort of third way, middle way Roberts path and Roberts can pull Kavanaugh and I don't know who, who else and forge some sort of compromise that upholds the Mississippi law without overturning Roe, yeah, I could imagine that being feeling more like the Casey decision, right? To the pro-choice side. That is a decision that you know allows for some additional restrictions, but the central holding of Roe is intact, right? Um and so basically we're um we're in, in a way it way it might even give the sense to the pro-choice side that Roe is even more secure, right? Uh that it's been upheld once again. And so the principle of stare decisis is even more powerful. It's going to be harder for future generations to overturn this law. So um, I, yeah, so I, I think there's something, something to that. In terms of a counter-revolution, I just don't get the logic here. I mean, the, this is partly for reasons I laid out earlier. I mean, this is a this has been the one issue, the one decision that's really just stuck in the craw of conservatives in the, in the federalist society as a poster child for everything that was wrong with the court. Right. Uh, in, and, and so actually, I think it's, it's really sort of the exception to the rule, or it's more likely to be the exception to the rule. I think the court has some appetite for overturning it. um, uh, because because we are we remain right so divided over this decision because so many Americans still feel it to be fundamentally unjust and um, and so I think it it you know 50 years later right this is still um, uh, so I I don't I guess I don't quite understand why tribe and others don't see this as a special case mm. right. Um, when it clearly does for so many reasons, right? I mean, again, and the other questions, right? Like take same-sex marriage. Um, you know, 50 years from now, we're not, I suspect, um, we're not going to be fighting over same-sex marriage. We're not even really fighting over <laughs> it now, right? And But if we were fighting over it 50 years from now, you'd think the court might have some reason to revisit it. And um, But again, uh, this is just by way of saying, Wesley, I think this is... A special case, and it should we we shouldn't read we I don't think this is the tip of a spear, right? And there's some mm. there's some larger counter revolution that's coming, and suddenly you know we're going to overturn same sex marriage or other kinds of um, other kinds of decisions that the court other, other kinds of issues that culture war issues, the court has, has, has made decisions
1: on. So, so those who are making these claims in your view are engaging in rhetorical alarmism in order to generate support for a cause. Well, maybe, I mean, I don't, maybe they sincerely believe it. W- when they say that all of these other rights depend I upon think, this, yeah, that yeah, is not actually I th- true. <laughs> I think
0: it's, I think it's, I, I think it's false. Right.
1: Um, and I guess I would, I mean, there are reactionaries who believe that, uh, but it's not actually right. true. Yeah,
0: I think it's enough to say, look, I mean, right? I mean, right? I I just think it's I I do think it's alarmism, and I I would say too, Wesley. I guess if I'm pushed a little here, I there's a lot of catastrophizing in our politics. Uh, yeah, I've noticed. Yes, and, and <laughs> yes, right? And and this does feel part of it, and. And, and I, I, I will say, you know, I mean, as a small C conservative, I'm a little concerned about the court overturning it too. I mean, I do worry, especially in our moment, uh, partly because we do seem to be coming apart at the seams. Um, I do worry about, uh, and because, you know, we've had Roe for 50 years, um, it does, it does feel like a pretty radical upheaval. To overturn it, and so I would be in favor of of Robert's approach, right? That would get us closer to I think where we're ultimately going to land anyway, and in a way that causes I think in a way that's less combustible, you know, in a way that doesn't again cause the kind of the kind the kind of discord. Maybe and in a way, I guess this is my way of agreeing with. Melissa, right? Like that. Like I, th- I think overturning it really does radicalize the left, and um, I'm not sure we need you know, radicalization. Right
1: now. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You are listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack at WesleyYang.substack.com. So the, the the five who, and I and I'm making the assumption it will be the five. It, 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 Roberts could end up joining it in part because of the um, because of the leak, which is itself a, a, a demonstration of the um, d- declining faith in the court and the and the uh, and, and the radicalization around it um, in going frontally at the thing and and cutting off its mm-hmm. head. They they declared right. themselves to be committed members of a movement with the same absolutist commitment to saving lives of the unborn, um, uh, as opposed to the role that Roberts is taking—a steward of the court's, uh, you know, legitimacy and uh, you know, trying to strike a bargain. They 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 reveal themselves to be members of this movement and to have been that all along. Is that? You think that's, tr- that's a true statement? You agree with that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, maybe in
0: part, I mean, I, in a way there is, I mean, if they were really absolutist, right, if, if that's who they are, they could they could not just reverse row. they could say there's, look, there's a, there's a natural right to life in the Constitution. <laughs> and, you know, um, instead what they're doing is sending it back uh, to the rest of us to sort out, and that feels, um, you know, I, I it's I, there's something strange about calling that absolutist. Yep. Um, on the other hand, you know, I mean, I do think they're, um, you know, they're certainly you could say they're movement people of a sort. You know, I mean, they're they're certainly sympathetic deeply sympathetic to the pro-life point of view. Um and I think feel the injustice of the of Roe, partly because they think um they think human embryos are deserve human rights, but also uh because they think it's wrong to disenfranchise, you know, folks who are on their team and whom with whom they agree with. So um but I know I, I wouldn't call them I I I resist calling them absolutist. Yeah. Uh, and, and agree that they're nonetheless part part of that movement in some ways.
1: So what my sort of potted framing of the American culture wars is that mm-hmm. two things happened at the same time in the mid-1980s. One was the foundation of the Federalist Society. The other was the early conferences on critical race theory, uh, at, at I think, at Harvard mm-hmm. University. And, and so mm-hmm. we have these two movements that went on long marches through the institutions. And those marches came Mm. to their conclusion right around 2019, when suddenly, (laughs) schools all across the country Mm. uh, were in a position, having many decades of movement building within schools of social work and of education and so forth, right? Uh, Received enough, kind of uh, obtained enough sort of sway within to openly declare themselves as this is something that we're gonna be teaching young people and we're gonna start mainstreaming this Mm -hmm. idea that was very much on the fringe just a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the the court obtained its 5-4 and then its 6-3 majority under hotly contested conditions um, under the tutelage of President Trump, who was a kind of, you know, a a kind of, Exogenous shock to a system that everyone expected would was going to deliver, uh, you know, a, a, an HRC presidency, <laughs> and so this the, this this unusual combination of events that also involved some constitutional hardball, right, upon uh, you know on the part of the Senate in order mm-hmm. to make sure that court belonged to them, um, and then this unusual development where the party captures the presidency and sort of the person that that was a kind of populist revolt at one level against the establishment party and yet delivered the court that it, was, that, that it, was, that it had been working for decades to obtain. Both of those things happened at the same time. And now, now the critical race theory is, is, is sort of in the process of seeking hegemony over the inculcation of the young. We also have at the same moment, the Harvard of a- Asian American lawsuit, uh, putting not just the vastly more expansive approach to affirmative action that critical race theory has always uh, argued for, but the thing itself on the chopping block, and then at the same moment, mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade. Um, so <laughs> it, 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 it's a, it's an extraordinary development, and it's and it's one it, it's one about rival elites. <laughs> Uh, developing mm-hmm. certain ideas, engaging in a certain kind of politics, mm-hmm. that that did not did not really come before the voters, and and now in twenty twenty two and in twenty twenty four, it's going to come before the voters. It looked like twenty twenty two is going to come before the voters, and wokeness was going to be repudiated uh, if we if we mm-hmm. take uh, you know what happened to Virginia as any sign the the leaking and the eventual decision changes that whole calculus so wh- how would you analyze you know these dynamics as they as they work themselves out?
0: Well maybe I'll ask you a question Wesley because I'm, I'm I hadn't thought to compare the two it's interesting to compare the Federalist society to critical race theory it's, it sort of begins in You know, academic circles, right? Um, Law schools, it's a fascinating comparison. I guess my question, because I've thought Mm. less about um, the critical race theory stuff, and and so, but I guess I'm wondering, I mean, for the critical race theorists, the early ones, I take it they didn't quite imagine this going where it's gone. No, I don't think so right? I mean, somebody like Derrick Bell, or I, I don't know what what they would make of, right? What, what's become of critical race theory, what we call it, right? Whereas the federal Society, that seems like those elites, this is exactly where they wanted to arrive, right? They wanted a court that would overturn Roe. And so it, I guess I'm wondering, is one case you have a, you know, one case you get something by design unfolding pretty much as expected. The other it sort of goes in ways that maybe even captured by, uh, maybe we should talk about this too, but, it, you know, captured by a, a kind of religious, pseudo-religious kind of revival fervor on the left um, in, in in a way that's, Right I mean the pro life movement does begin in churches and sort of like it, it's sort of religious from the beginning Cr- critical race theory feels like it was at birth you know something that was kind of esoteric and academic and in a way wasn't I don't know to what degree they wanted to remake the world in its image or but but then it sort of becomes taken you know it's sort of grabbed onto by a, a different generation and a more in a more populist ways
1: and more religious ways and so yeah it, it I, I don't know I don't know if those differences matter exactly but I'm- it obtains a certain mimetic propagation at a certain point and then but then it also th- th- there is a kind of moral entrepreneurialism that goes on where you know you have people mm. who in response to uh, you know, a demand that is generated by uh, civil rights enforcement. You know, within private corporations. You know, you, you get these people who start, mm-hmm. who go into business mm-hmm. as 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 those who have an expertise in, in managing, you know, uh, racial uh, you know tensions or you know fostering facilitating diversity within organizations. And you you look at the backgrounds of these people, and you know uh, Tima Okun, who is responsible for the characteristics of white supremacy. Uh, I call it a copy pasta, but you know it is this piece of rhetoric that we see everywhere these days. You know, she was a physical education mm. degree from Oberlin College, mm-hmm. and a, a white lady, mm-hmm. right? Like her name doesn't actually sound mm-hmm. like one, which I think is was an advantage for her. But mm-hmm. she came up with mm-hmm. this thing. She, you know, she just kind of made it up, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and and yet, at a certain moment, right when the uh, a religious fervor taking the form of frenzy and chaos in the streets of the United mm-hmm. States, in this you know during the, mm-hmm. during the last year of the Trump administration, in the mm-hmm. midst of a pandemic, right uh, after mm-hmm. uh, a propagation of a viral mean of of, a, of human sacrifice at the hands mm-hmm. of the states. Right there. Uh, mm. Suddenly these things all became ubiquitous. And, and there was a kind of path dependency in the sense that like every corporation felt like it needed to do something. <laughs> and the materials mm-hmm. that were on hand were simply the ones that were accepted and, and, and entrenched. Mm. Nobody really, you know, like no one, no one respectable really defends these things as making any sense. But that's mm-hmm. what we had. And so that's what we went with. Uh, the issue is, is that mimetic uh, uh, sort of propagation that can be so rapid can it, it seems also, you know, be extremely shallow and and uh, and mm-hmm. and dissipate as quickly as it propagates. And, and this is this is mm-hmm. a, 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 you know a facet I think of a social media driven public sphere that we saw happen at scale here, but that we're going to just keep seeing happen again and again in the future. And so there is a question about how deeply entrenched all this is, we do know how widely spread it is. We, we know that every mm-hmm. institution ended up putting out their, you know, their sort of mm-hmm. uh, attestation of, you know, submission to doctrine and orthodoxy. And, and there's gonna be, and, but there's a longer process of seeing what that actually means in practice. In some cases, it means a lot. In many cases, it means less. Mm-hmm. But, but certainly, <laughs> what it does mean is that the stuff is present mm-hmm. in schools, and and many mm-hmm. parents are being exposed to it, and and it is serving as the basis for political organizing on those who are saying, you know, we are mm-hmm. going to keep this away from your children, um, and then it opens up all of these questions about free speech. You have this doctrine that is that was from the mm-hmm. very beginning, sort of aimed at undercutting and subverting arguments about free speech. And yet now those who attempt Mm -hmm. to prevent it from being taught are in a position of impinging upon the free speech of those who want to teach an anti-free speech doctrine, right? Uh, And so Mm -hmm. there's all this complication around it. Uh, Nonetheless, Mm -hmm. right, it doesn't take the form of people who knew exactly what they were doing from the start seeking a defined aim. And the question is Mm -hmm. whether it became more or less powerful as a result of taking this other form. And there's a sense in which like what we're gonna see work itself out is what does it mean to control the cultural apparatus and the educational infrastructure of the country versus controlling the courts, right? And so there's a lot that the Mm -hmm. courts can do, but then there's also a lot that, there's also this problem now that we do have a cadre of educators who take many of these positions as axiomatic. And, and so attempts to use the power of government in order to prevent the spread of, the, of those ideas is necessarily a kind of suppression of free speech and thought that the government is also committed to preventing. So just like many less nested, nested layers of, yeah. of irony and difficulty, but in the broad sense, what we're going to see is... It, Wokeness, ideological succession, as I call it, is going to be before both the courts and the legislatures in the years to come. And But what's interesting to me also about what your argument is, is there's something not just about its popularity, uh, but something intrinsic to abortion and Roe v. Wade that means it doesn't have really broad uh, implications for everything else, that it, because, because the country yeah. didn't become progressively more progressive on this issue over time... Uh, it, it's not going to follow the same trajectory that other cultural war issues do there's something intrinsic to it there's something to about the way the legislators uh, you know sort of a priesthood of Supreme Court jurists mm-hmm. just took it out of the hands of the public that makes it so that mm-hmm. returning it to the hands of the legislature and and, and turn to the people is okay <laughs> like that's basically your argument right
0: yeah I, I mean I yeah, I'm I'm inclined to think that's yeah. right. I mean, that would have, that was certainly my view for a long time. You know, I as I said, I mean, I do worry a bit in our moment. The mutual escalation because, can again. Yes. Yeah, I just I just worry about the the, the temperature mm. in our democracy, and I suppose, and this is sort of connected to the what's happening on the left. I mean, there's a part of me that worries that if the court overturns Roe, it elevates... I mean, Trump is already, you know, a a figure of some spiritual significance and grandeur to, you know, a lot of conservatives. And if he's the one, right, uh, who, you know, kills this thing because he had the courage to, whatever, to bend the rules and get these justices through... You know, I worry that some of those on the Christian right will see him in sort of providential ways, you know, and, and that's concerning because there's already this huge, of course, this huge cult of personality that surrounds Trump. And, and I don't like where that train is going just generally, of course. So, so I'm worried. I do worry a little bit about what this might do to the right. So to the extent that the, that overturning Roe deepens the hold that Trump has on the American right, that's a very bad outcome. And so, you know, again, if you would have asked me this 10 years ago, um, I'm, I'm less ambivalent
1: about <laughs> overturning Roe than I am now. And I guess there is a sense in which you kind of did need someone temperamentally distinctive, let us say, To go for it in the way that he did, because otherwise we would have Roberts-esque figures husbanding the the legitimacy of the court and taking as a given stare decisis and taking as a given the fact that this thing exists and is part of the culture, and we we must respect the norms. and and someone willing to break some of those norms had to be there, and of course it was the Senate also did it, so it wasn't it wasn't just Trump. But I would imagine that you know because I'm not really a, a watcher of the Christian right, but I imagine as a watcher of the Christian right, you are already seeing some of this uh, rhetoric starting to emerge, and that sense of providence, especially as we potentially re-enter the 2024 election could get pretty
0: hot. Right, right. So it's, a, no, I'm already, you already see it. And you already see it, I mean, I mean, even among folks on the right who, you know, are not pro-Trump, but but are pro, very pro-life. And so Erica Brockiaki of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, who's a sort of Catholic, Consistent ethic of life, uh, pro-life, or feminist. You know, she wrote a piece in the New York Times this last year that basically um, said she's grateful for Trump. You know that he's he's really pulled this off. And um, so, yeah, I, I I do think. I mean, we've talked a bit about what this would mean for the left, and I think it would energize them. But I also think it would arguably help Trump in the primaries in twenty twenty four. He can take credit for this, right? This is something no other conservative has been able to do, and there's been plenty of failures, right? Um, so I, yeah. yeah. So I, in short, I'm 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 worried about how all that plays out.
1: No, I mean, so a watcher of the uh, Harvard affirmative action case that I was talking to, who is, you know, very, um, you know, aligned with the plaintiffs, you know, I asked him. It's kind of incredible what. Harvard put on the record in response to it. it, it, It's kind of shocking what they put on the record. And his sort of theory was that they assumed that they could be open about what they were doing and the court would then bless it because it would be Hillary's court. And so this exogenous shock left them exposed (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they could have been a lot less forthcoming. about the degree to which they mm-hmm. did some pretty irregular practices. Mm. But the actual deliberate goal was to be more forthcoming and say, oh, it's all allowed, mm. right? And mm. and so now that they're sort of caught mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with Trump's judges in there, in addition to the, the question now is, having had the kind of uh, stones to knock down Roe v. Wade, does it mean that they are then afraid for what this would mean for affirmative action, or does it mean that no, in fact, they're gonna go for a broke on that one too? That was one where most informed viewers, even prior to Roe v. Wade, were like, yeah, you know, affirmative action is kind of history. Um, but you know, people also were saying this during Fisher versus Tectus. Oh. Scalia dies right in the middle of it. And the streets are full yeah. of uh, Ferguson protesters at that moment. And then Anthony Kennedy does this switch in time that, that is not consistent with anything that he had ever done or said on, on the issue. Is, do, do, you, do you think they're just going to go for it on all fronts? or? Well, that's, that's
0: interesting. I mean, it's hard to say. One thing I would say, though, is there is a... I mean, there is a case that, in some ways, what the court does in in either abortion or or affirmative action matters less in a way than than the culture. because so, for example, I mean, it's in a world in which, you know, so let's take conservative states that ban abortion, there will certainly be underground providers, right? They existed before Roe. Um was passed uh, quite extensively in some places like New York City, those will reemerge. They're already starting to, likewise, with affirmative action. I mean, you know, colleges and universities do all kinds of things all the time. They're against the law, right, that flagrantly violate constitutional law. Uh, certainly academic departments do this all the time when they hire, right or wrong. I'm not taking a position on it. I'm just making, I think, an observation that's true. So, you know, I I do think in a way that these battles are ultimately won and lost really in the culture and the hearts and mind of citizens, right? Because there's all kinds of ways to subvert what the Supreme Court says, especially in closed, insular, homogenous institutions, right? Like, as universities and colleges are, um, certainly, you know, underground abortion, like, like all those things are going to exist. And so I think the court, you know, I mean, it's interesting to think about what, you know, what ultimate power in some ways does the court have to constrain, to constrain us, particularly in an age in which we're so polarized and, and elites are going to you know say sort of a few you, you know i mean mm-hmm. i don't um i'm not going to listen to this you know reactionary court
1: yeah so elite, elite consensus <laughs> greater than yeah greater than yeah, I, I well it, i mean the court is a factor but it's only a factor right. to the extent to which elite consensus will follow it and and if it does not yeah then it's a relatively minor factor
0: I mean, it's always been true with the court, right? I mean, it's, you know, going back to Brown, right? I mean, the court could pass Brown to Board of Education, but it took a civil rights movement to really bring about any kind of integration in Southern schools. So, you know, we we should not forget in some ways
1: the limited power of the court to to reshape social reality, right? So I guess we began uh, talking about the equilibrium That is out there. Do you feel that we're gonna? We'll go on an adventure, certainly, and the adventure along the path to it could uh, it could destroy the nation, (laughs) right? Um, uh, Mm. And yet, all along, there there is this there is this there's value in pointing out that there is this reasonable supermajority supported peace treaty that we could be coalescing around. And if someone had the vision mm-hmm. to to produce the political support behind it, I mean, these figures that you're looking at are kind of national figures, right? And so I guess it's gonna be different when you go state by state. And in many of these cases, far more restrictive yeah. uh, rules will have political support behind them. Right. So, um, so it's a matter of like, will we be able to continue to uh, live together under a single national polity while having such great divergence in the laws under which we live and you know that that does seem to be the other exit route out of continually escalating confrontation between two tribes that are becoming ever more polarized is is that also going to be part of the solution in the end you know some kind of expanded federalism and uh, you know sort of a willingness to let other states live under pretty vastly different regimes. You know,
0: I, I'd i like to think so. Uh, you know, again, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, absolutely, you know, this is the way to go. This is the way to honor our nation's diversity and pluralism. And that's that's been the model really by design, right, from the beginning. And, and certainly you're right. I mean, states vary a lot in terms of their... Preferences on on abortion policy, so you know at one extreme you have West Virginia, and you know about a third of its only about a third of its citizens want there to be abortion access and then on the other extreme you have Massachusetts, and about three out of four of them their citizens you know want something like roe and then there's a lot of there's a spectrum in between, and so one view is that look, you know, states can craft their own laws. They better align with public opinion. And therefore, that'll help us keep the peace. You know, uh, we can have pro-choice states and pro-life ones. The problem with that view, though, now, I think, or one problem with it, is we become so nationalized as citizens, right? So there's a real, there's all kinds of ways in which we've ceased to be citizens of localities or states. And, I mean, you really see this certainly on the right, you know, in Wyoming, they're passing laws against critical race theory and abortion and trying to expand gun rights. Um, And there's something kind of crazy about it in some ways, right? It's Wyoming. All those things are not threats, right, to their whole way of life but they've become such creatures of the national media, right? That they think, well, the agenda of the state legislature should be issue-taking on all of these positions, right? They've even engaged in, they've even passed laws that have to do with the border issue, right? It's sort of, there's something sort of crazy about it if you're in Wyoming, right? A little ways from the border. So I, you know, I think your the the tale you're telling and the tale I once told it works. It works in a nation in which we're still citizens of mm. states, right. but we've ceased to yeah. be that really in all kinds of meaningful ways. And I guess that the question is, can that return? And might, you know, might, you know, st- might, might the court stepping back from Roe allow us in some ways to once again be citizens of the state and not just the nation? And of course, Roe is part of the nationalization. Of American politics, because before that it was really fought out in the states, right? It was really just fundamentally an issue for the states. So I'd like to think we could return to that and once again be citizens of our of our localities and states. And um, but that's not where we're heading. And I don't I don't feel I feel less optimistic, right, than I once did that that we can we can sort of just coexist. You know, because we're so consumed with one another, you know. Well, we're um, so present I'm, to one I'm another. I'm not sure. Because social media yes, makes us right. present to one another.
1: Social media. Right, right. So it's... it's Okay. okay. All right. Um, so it's been an uh, interesting conversation. Is there anything else uh, you, you want to add or, uh, you know, last thoughts that you should think about hmm. in, in light of... You know what? What promises to be an enormous change in the political life of the country.
0: I don't think so. I think I think we covered lots of ground, Wesley. I'm trying to think here. I'm coming up blank. Um, But I appreciate the the interview. It's great to great to meet you and great
1: to hash through these issues. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much. This is the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where you can go to read my writings, and where you can subscribe personally to enable the continuation of this work at wesleyyang.substack.com. Do you know of any case
0: anywhere that's held in an unborn fetus is a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. No, sir. We can only go back to what the framers of our Constitution had in mind. Well, these weren't the framers who
1: wrote the 14th Amendment that came along. No, sir. I, uh, I understand, but the 5th Amendment, uh, under the 5th Amendment, no one shall be deprived of a, a rights to life, liberty, and property without the due process of lawful. Yes, but then
0: the 14th Amendment defines person, and it defines person as somebody who's born, doesn't it?
1: I'm not sure if Al does. That it, of its own that it can assert? Uh, and uh, Oh, we have other interests, Your Honor. Uh, preventing uh, uh, promiscuity, say.